Welcome to Freely Filtered, the twice-a-month podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight, we have a few members of the filtrate, plus a special guest, Caitlin Sustak. Caitlin, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. My name is Caitlin Sustak. I am a Hungarian-American. My Twitter handle is Kshustak, which is spelled K-S-U-S. Z-T-A-K, with all the vowels, that's truly Hungarian. (laughs) Uh, I am a professor of medicine and genetics at the University of Pennsylvania, and I have a long-standing interest in understanding chronic kidney disease, especially diabetic kidney disease development. Uh, I am a physician scientist, so I spend 80% of my time in the lab, and I run a fairly large research group. look forward to this podcast. Excellent. Thanks for coming on. We're really excited to have you. And we have two members of the filtrate. Swapnil. Hi, I'm Swapnil Harmath. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa in Canada. I don't have any conflicts uh, of interest for this podcast, but uh, the lead author is a close friend of uh, CKD Fix. And you tweet at? Uh, And I tweet at H Swapnil. Excellent. And Samira? I'm Samira Farouk, a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. I tweet at SS Farouk. Matt and Jenny, unfortunately, could not be here tonight. Back in 2009, Henry Ford Nephrology put together a one-day symposium on uric acid and kidney disease. They had a number of speakers, but the final speaker was Richard Johnson, who gave what to this day is still the best scientific presentation I have ever heard. He played out his hypothesis that increased consumption of fructose, primarily as part of sucrose, is leading the current epidemics of obesity, hypertension, and chronic kidney disease. The mediator for the hypertension and CKD was fructose's ability for unregulated consumption of ATP, resulting in increased ADP and AMP, which were metabolized to uric acid. Uric acid was the bad actor causing hypertension and chronic kidney disease. It was a masterful presentation that included evolutionary biology, cross-species comparison, Genetics, medical history, including an appearance by William Osler, uh, a Stryer-esque review of glycolysis, epidemiology, extensive animal studies, and a few early human interventional trials. I was enraptured and became a willing disciple in the Church of Johnson. I created my best facsimile of his presentation, which I gave at local hospitals and regional meetings. I blogged my way through his book, The Sugar Fix, which was half scientific treatise and half diet self-improvement book. And I kept waiting for the proof to come. And I waited. And I waited. Over the years, I fell off the bandwagon. And now we finally have the answer. No matter how good the epidemiology, no matter how good the animal data is, the proof only comes when we do well-done, randomized, placebo-controlled trials, and the RCT Reaper has come for the uric acid hypothesis. Tonight, we will be talking about two well-done, randomized-controlled trials that randomize patients to allopurinol to determine if this slows the progression of CKD. The two trials were done in different countries to different types of patients, but despite these differences, they both found the same conclusion. Allopurinol does not protect the kidneys. 
This is not only a win for science, but it is also a win for meta-analysis because the best and most comprehensive systematic reviews showed the same conclusions as did a Mendelian randomization study. While it is disappointing that a once promising method for protecting the kidneys has shown to be just a placebo with more side effects, this is what progress often looks like. So we're going to start off with uh, Swapnil and Samira talking, giving us a too long TLDR version of the study. So get this done real quick. Right. So the uh, too long didn't read version of the methods is that we are discussing two trials here. One is Pearl and the other one is CKD fix. The common things between these two trials uh, is that they both try to include patients who were at high risk of progression. In the case of Pearl, they did this by taking patients who had type 1 diabetes with a GFR between 40 to 100, uh, but who needed to have either proteinuria, so either having proteinuria or being on a RAS blockade, or having a GFR decrease, which was more than 3 mils per minute per year. In the case of CKD fix, uh, this was a GFR which was slightly lower, so 15 to 60, stage 4 and um, stage 3 and stage 4 CKD, uh, not diabetic patients. Uh, they could be diabetic or non-diabetic, but they did need to have either proteinuria again or to have uh, a GFR decrease of more than 3 mils per minute per year uh, preceding uh, enrollment into the criteria, into the study. Uh, both the studies, now this is all GFR, uh, so the outcomes are change in GFR uh, and not ESR, ESKD or death or dialysis. Um, in the case of Pearl, this change in GFR was measured by IOHexal clearance, so it was uh, actual measured GFR and not estimated GFR. In the case of CKD fix, this was estimated GFR using the CKD epi equation. As far as the intervention is concerned, the interventions were allopurinol in both groups. Uh, and in both groups, in uh, Pearl, there was a run-in phase where they tried to make sure patients were on RAS blockade if they had not been on RAS blockade prior, and they ramped up the dose of allopurinol. The same thing was done in a slightly different way also in CKD fix, trying to get them up to a dose of uh, 300 milligrams in CKD fix and up to 400 milligrams because that was a higher GFR uh, cutoff in, in Pearl. And the follow-up, it was three years in uh, Pearl and two years in CKD fix, uh, again with the outcomes being a change in GFR. Uh, the plan, of course, was to enroll uh, 480 patients, but they ended up uh, enrolling 530 patients, as we shall see in Pearl, uh, whereas in CKD fix, it was 620, and they ended up uh, enrolling 363, which is slightly lower because of uh, lower enrollment rate. And again, this was based on a uh, they, they, the um, assumptions for sample size were slightly different, so hence the sample sizes uh, for both studies are slightly different. Um, the uh, Pearl was done in US, Canada, and Denmark, but mostly American sites funded by NIH, and CKD fix was done in Australia and New Zealand funded by NHMRC. So the uh, quick results here, the punchline is that allopurinol did not really have any positive effect on slowing the progression of chronic kidney disease or other secondary outcomes that both of these studies looked at. Um, so starting with PEARL, which was a study that enrolled patients with diabetes, the mean age of this patient population was 51 years. Duration of diabetes was very long, 35 years on average. The mean estimated GFR was uh, 75 um, cc per minute per 1.73 meters squared. Mean A1c was 8%, and their starting urate level was 6.5 milligrams per deciliter. 
Of note, 90% of these um, patients were already on renin-angiotensin system inhibitors with the BMI of 30, and the median urine albumin excretion was 41 micrograms per minute. Um, So their primary outcome, there was no difference in the slope of EGFR change. It was uh, minus 2.5 versus 3 per year in each of the groups. And with respect to the secondary outcomes, there was no clinically meaningful effect with regard to baseline adjusted IOHEXAL GFR at four months into the intervention or at the end of the intervention period. And this was similar for the estimated GFR. Um, The urine albumin excretion was actually higher in the allopurinol group compared to the placebo group, and it was uh, 40% at the end of the washout period and 30% higher at the end of the intervention period. Um, So overall, allopurinol not really doing anything positive that we're looking for. Um, Moving to CKD fix, as uh, Swap mentioned, um, 369 patients were randomized to the allopurinol or the placebo group. Um, There was a 104-week follow-up here. Um, 60% of these patients had a history of diabetes, again, a BMI of around 30, age was around 60, EGFR um, around 30, and higher albuminuria of uh, 700 in this group, and a higher starting urate level of around 8 milligrams per deciliter in both groups. Again, primary outcome here, similar in both groups, about uh, a drop in about 3 mLs per year, um, and this was consistent across pre-specified subgroups, including age, CKD stage, diabetes, diuretic use, as well as renin-angiotensin inhibitor use. And again, the secondary um, outcome, which here was a composite of EGFR, end-stage kidney disease, or death from any cause, um, actually was, again, higher in the allopurinol group, 35% versus 28% in the placebo group, um, with a hazard ratio of 1.3 with an interval crossing 1. And similar results were actually observed for the, um, the other secondary outcomes that they looked at. So um, in summary, Pearl NCKD fix, allopurinol group did not do any better, and in the secondary outcomes, maybe even did a little bit worse. Excellent. So swap, let's start with um, Pearl. Uh, what was the uh, methods for Pearl? So Pearl, which stands for preventing early renal loss, uh, it's renal, and, and Matt is not here, so we can freely say renal. Um, so it, it was preventing early renal loss and diabetes. It would be so odd, right? P-E-K-L, what kind of uh, uh, name would that be? K is very hard. R is so much easier to fit into many things. Matt, yours? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, Pearl was a double-blind parallel group multicenter randomized uh, placebo control trial. Uh, done in US, Canada, and Denmark, funded by not just the NIH, but also the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. Um, and uh, the IOHEXOL was supplied by GE Healthcare. So in terms of Is the- Is this the same IOHEXOL that we're terrified of giving to patients with CKD because it could cause contrast nephropathy? Exactly. So the, the contrast nephropathy, which does not exist, uh, but maybe it does. Uh, now, of course, the doses of IOHEXOL used for clearance are very, very small. Um, Do you have a sense of what those are? Uh, like the, 15 cc's or something? Exactly, like exactly. It's in that range. So, uh, And I think dose is a huge part. Uh, and again, this is given intravenously as well, not intra-arterially. Uh, you know, you're not having a catheter going into your aorta. Well, and, they, and they gave the toxin to both groups. Both the control and the experimental group got the same amount of contrast. <laughs> of the contrast, exactly. Um, so the study population, uh, this was type 1 diabetes, uh, adult patients. 
uh, and they needed to have uh, uh, the the thing to keep in mind is they're trying to choose patients who have fast progression because you want to have uh, an effect and if patients are having a very slow progression what's the point you are unlikely to find anything so this is a common theme in both studies they're trying to find patients at higher risk um, so in this case they did that by a they had to have uh, diabetes for more than eight years uh, with an age between 18 to 70 years and the gfr had to be anywhere from 40 to 99.9 for fast progression, they needed to have diabetic kidney disease. So uh, this was defined by a urine albumin excretion rate of more than 20 micrograms per minute, or they had to have treatment with a renin-angiotensin system blocker, right? So if they had a RAS blockade on, then the proteinuria criteria did not apply, or they had to have an evidence of decline of GFR of at least three mils per minute per 1.73 meters square for the previous three to five years. This I don't normally measure albumin in micrograms per minute, but that... Yeah. That's not that much, right? That's like 30 milligrams per gram creatinine, right? Exactly, exactly. It's not huge. Uh, and I guess maybe in type 1 diabetes, uh, maybe endocrinologists measure it that way. I'm not sure why. I've seen AERs in the past. Uh, that took me some time as well. Do I you agree. think they really were able to enrich for fast progressors from the outcome? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, if we see what happened, uh, even in the control group, uh, there is this question which shall crop up again. That's an excellent question, but hold that thought. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, but but I but I but I, I see. I'm going the exact same way that that Catalan is. I just don't think you know they they describe this as a people that have diabetic nephropathy, and I'm like 35 years of diabetes yeah. <laughs> and very minimal proteinuria and GFRs that are great. Right. It's like they use this like weird unit that we don't understand to, to try confuse to hide us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I think if you have 35 years of diabetes and you're not on dialysis, that's pretty success in my practice. So right, usually right. people who have that long of diabetes and they don't have GFR under 60, I think, uh, I mean, I think many people consider them, they are they, they, they're somewhat protected from kidney disease development overall. But, yeah. And also, also the the ninety percent being on you know RAS blockade that's much higher than what actually happens in reality. I think that is true, but I think type one patients are relatively like usually very compliant. So many of the type one patients, I, I think the rate of RAS certainly the ones that have survived thirty five years. <laughs> yes. <are very> compliant. <laughs> <laughs> actually, we don't have data on their glucose control, but they could have actually fairly good glucose control. Yeah, no, it was I think A one Cs were a, uh, average of eight. But sorry, but it, this is an excellent point. So these patients may have a different flavor, right, phenotypically, of, yeah. of diabetic nephropathy, uh, a, a much milder flavor. Uh, so and it, it, it's funny, when I read that it was type 1 diabetics that they were treating, it brought me right back to uh, kind of our early, like some of the foundational work that we did on diabetes. They were all done in type 1s, the, uh, the Captopril mm -hmm. collaborative group yeah. Yeah, with Lewis and even the DCCT trial. Where and they were, but those were young participants, right? They were like in their twenties. They were not these people with decades of type one diabetes. It ended up being it was not the population I expected when I read the results. Right, right. And I guess we weren't good at treating diabetes in those days as well. That's why they did have outcomes. Right now, you know, I I rarely see type one. It's not that I don't see, but I don't see many type one diabetes patients in my uh, dialysis unit anymore. 
I, yeah, I think generally that's the case. But I think this is a very interesting population. And I think the other interesting, because they probably try to enrich for rapid progression by looking at 3CC GFR change. But, you know, once their GFR is still like 90, even a 3CC GFR change may be different when you actually have CKD and you do have a 3CC GFR change, right? So right, they right. So the, the yeah, the absolute 3CC means different when you start off at 90 versus you start off at 25. Yeah, exactly. So the percent change is like really small if you are at the higher end. So then they had people with, you know, GFR of 90, right? So I think it will be difficult to understand like how they met the enrollment criteria, right? This is classic Freely Filtered. Swapnil got one sentence out and we have derailed him completely. <laughs> Okay, Swap, keep going. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 this is No, perfect. it's perfect. This, this, this it's perfect. I derailed you. No, but I think it's an important problem of, I mean, it's not a big problem, but I think it's, a, it's, an, it's an interesting question to discuss with this particular study. But I think the reason, can I continue? The reason yeah, actually they went to iotelomate like, or iohexol or, sorry, the, so measured GFR is because the GFR was high, right? So under those circumstances, the estimation is not very good. And they had a large proportion of patients that actually had like normal kidney function. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah, I yeah. think. Just, so, so for our listeners, just to reiterate, the, the CKDAP and MDRD equations uh, perform, don't perform well, even the best of circumstances, but at GFR is greater than 60, they're awful. Uh, there's a lot of noise, and if we just repeat uh, numbers again and again, you would see, you know, them fluctuate. Uh, so using estimated GFR when the GFRs are greater than 60 as an outcome would be a disaster. Uh, which, of course, in this case, they that's why they had to use uh, iohexol uh, GFR, uh, which is completely appropriate. Um, the other criteria was they had to have a serum urate, which was uh, more than 4.5 milligrams per deciliter, which is about 270 micromoles per liter for um, uh, the rest of the world. Um, uh, this was, again, not a very high urate level, but from their experience, you know, that was the median they had seen in, in other uh, cohorts. cohorts. Can we studies. talk about why, why they say urate and not uric acid? Uh, so that's an excellent point. The only answer I got from, I asked one of the, the like uh, Dr. Badby on the, pod, on the chat, and he said, what we measure is urate. Uh, so the lab does not measure actual uric acid, they measure urate. That's why so they it's keep, all a lie. It's it, a huge it, lie. <laughs> uh, uh, but for, for, for stones, I think it matters, right? I remember Goldfarb uh, chiming in once saying that uh, there are uric acid stones and there are monosodium urate stones. And I forget what do you see when. So the, I think the, the low pH stones are all uric acid stones. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. They're, they're not urate stones. They are uric acid stones. I don't know. I, I, some, yeah, I, I think it's something like <laughs> right. that. So, yeah. so uric acid is the acid form. So that's when you have uh, the OO with the acid at the end. Uh, mm -hmm. And then uh, urate is, I think, the salt form. So it depends on the pH. You have either uric acid or urate. I don't really know what you're measuring, uh, measured in the lab. But yeah, so, so for therefore, I think for the stones, you can have, you know, sodium urate or whatever, monosodium, whatever, all kinds of complexes that hard for us to understand <laughs> Excellent. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um. Samira asked a question and none of us knew the answer well done <laughs> <laughs> um, sort of uh, uh, in terms of the exclusion and we are still at Paul 
uh, in terms of the exclusions, uh, anyone who had a history of gout or a, a real indication for having um, urate-lowering therapy were excluded. This is again a common indication in CKD fix as well. Uh, people with recurrent renal calculi, drugs that would interact with allopurinol and that, that's a huge thing. Many drugs do interact with allopurinol. Uh, and the other interesting one is HLA-B5801 uh, positivity. So these are patients who are at high risk of having um, Steven Johnson's with uh, uh, allopurinol. So those were excluded. Patients with really high blood pressures, liver disease, alcohol abuse and a few other um, conditions were excluded. In terms of the intervention itself, they, there was a run-in phase in Pearl of nine weeks where they had to be on a RAS blockade uh, equal, equivalent to 10 milligrams of ramipril or 300 of irbisata and adjusted to a BP of less than 140-90. That's um, how you get 90% of people on ACE inhibitors is right. you give them seven weeks with a run-in <laughs> where you put them on it. Right, right, exactly. So even if they were not on, they made sure they were on. And again, maybe that would perhaps, you know, uh, retard the progression of uh, GFR, uh, of uh, progression a little bit, perhaps. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, and then they were randomized to receive placebo or allopurinol. Allopurinol was 100 milligrams a day uh, for 40 weeks and then it was increased. And it seems it wasn't a stepwise increase from what I could make out. Uh, if the GFR was more than 50, they went to 400. If the GFR was 25 to 50, they went to um, 200, uh, sorry, 300. And if the GFR was 15 to 24, they went to uh, 200 milligrams a day. And uh, I don't know how, what they did with the placebo. Uh, is there any capsulology segment there? Not about the placebo as much because there was too much exciting stuff to say about allopurinol. So um, allopurinol is um, on the World Health Organization's list of essential medications. And in the last few years, it was actually the 54th most prescribed medication in the, in the United States with over 14 million prescriptions in one year. Um, so widely used drug um, that I think important for us to understand a little bit. Um, so in its purest form, it comes as a white powder, um, but it, when it's prescribed to patients, it comes as a tablet in either 100 or 300 milligrams in white, orange, or light peach. And so when your patient tells you, what is that light peach pill, it might be allopurinol. Um, and so how does it work? It's a purine analog and a structural isomer of hypoxanthine, which is a naturally occurring purine in the body and is also an inhibitor of the enzyme xanthine oxidase, which is responsible for oxidation of hypoxanthine and xanthine and ultimately leads to the production of uric acid. Um, so its active metabolite is called oxypurinol, um, which is also an inhibitor of xanthine oxidase. And allopurinol is almost completely metabolized to oxypurinol within a couple hours of oral administration. And then oxypurinol is slowly excreted by the kidneys over the next 18 to 30 hours. And so for this reason, oxypurinol is really what is thought to be responsible for the majority of the urate or uric acid lowering um, effects. Um, and so a little bit of history, it was first synthesized in, in the 1950s um, in the search for an anti-cancer drug, and then it was also used um, to try to enhance the action of um, mercaptopurine, which is a thiopurine drug, um, and was used in the treatment of acute lymphoblastic leukemia, um, but it didn't really work. And then 10 years later, it was approved for uh, treatment of gout, and that's kind of where we are today. Um, and another interesting thing I learned is that allopurinol is actually available in injection form, um, which I've never used or seen ordered, but um, thought that was a fun fact. 
So that's the capsule algae about allopurinol. All right. And I'm sure, the plac- I'm sure the placebo was something about, you know, wood chips or something like we've done before. <laughs> <laughs> but who are these millions of people taking allopurinol? You think it's just for gout? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I guess so. It, yeah, exactly. 14 yeah. million people with gout or uh, I, I cancer? Th- like I, I think take- a lot of us bought into the story, right? So I, I do, um, I'll confess. To take it? Uh, no, no, I don't take it. I, can, I, I, I confess that uh, when... Um, Come on, uh, it doesn't sound like a statin. Yeah, yeah, I should be taking a statin. Uh, but the uh, uh, the story that Joel started off with about, uh, you know, the compelling narrative of uric acid uh, 10, 10, 15 years ago, you know, when this all came into... Uh, I had bought into it and I was actually measuring uric acid and I was trying to find any excuse I could to give my CKD patients allopurinol. Um, and, and, you know, if, if the trial had happened in Canada, I would have tried to enroll patients. Um, uh, once the Mendelian randomization study came out, uh, or at least, you know, that's when I saw and, and it looked uh, and the kidney week presentations came out, I realized I was wrong. In fact, last week I went and I had uric acid is in my panel on EPIC of investigations I do. I just took it off saying, okay, I will take it out if, because it's hard, right? You, you see hyperuricemia and you react to it. Uh, yes. e- e- even if your patient doesn't have uh, uh, CKD, I saw, so I took it off. I'm going to. We're active. nephrologists. We like to fix the numbers. Exactly. And it was just another it, number it to kinda, fix. It kind of reminds me of um, phosphorus. Like we, you know, get obsessed with it, but there's, you know, like what are we doing? Oh my god, that's a that's that's an awesome example of just something where we perseverate over it, and we measure it, and we give patients kilograms and kilograms of these binders. And it's and a quality measure, right? It, it's 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 measured. And it's, it's like a quality how, measure, yeah. and we have no idea whether it helps our patients. Yeah. yeah. So uh, and then now going on to the whether it matters, uh, looking at the outcomes. So for Paul, the outcome and and the same thing for CKD fix was a change in GFR from baseline. In this case, the GFR was measured based on the IOHexol GFR, which was measured at baseline um, at 80 weeks, which was roughly the midpoint of the three-year trial. And at the end of the study, uh, and there was a two-month uh, washout period as well uh, after you know allopurinol was stopped and the GFR was measured again. They did have a bunch of secondary outcomes, including uh, safety measures, GFR measured by different ways, uh, ESKD, uh, proteinuria. Um, now, the and statistical analysis is a little bit interesting. Uh, their effect was a, a difference of three mils per minute of GFR uh, in between the groups. Um, and they estimated they would need, you know, 180 patients in each group with uh, accounting for dropout. That would be about 240 in each group. Uh, and by the time they reached the enrollment of 480, uh, 50 patients were still already in the run-in phase. So they decided to include all the 50. So they were sort of rich that they got more patients than, yeah. slightly more patients than they had planned to, which is slightly different than what we see with the, with the other study. So the outcome, if it was successful, it would have been a difference of 3cc of GFR? No, no, no. No, okay. Less than that. Less than that. In case I, there am was I, a... Am I wrong? The group difference. Oh no! Was a group sorry. difference of three, more than three, three or more. Okay, more three okay. or more. Okay, so basically, if it was successful, it would have convinced us having three cc GFR difference between two groups to continue prescribing allopurinol. That's an excellent point. So you know, going back to your point about the high GFRs we are talking about. So let's say we ended up with a GFR of seventy-five versus seventy-one. Uh, it would have been a positive study. You know, I'm just making up some numbers, which is kind of amazing. <laughs> you step back and say, you know, who cares about uh, GFRs uh, at that level? It is so, um, you know, they're pretty high. Uh, 
anyway so that uh, that study was uh, was pearl there are many things which are similar again this this like uh, uh, pearl this was an investigator initiated randomized double blind placebo controlled trial uh, this one was done across the world in australia and new zealand it was funded by nhmrc which is sort of the australian equivalent of uh, nih um, the criteria were for gfr was slightly different the, the these were not type 1 diabetic patients they just were ckd patients uh, adult ckd patients and the gfr was between 15 to 60 and they needed to have proteinuria of more than uh, 265 milligram per gram or about 30 milligram per millimole uh, and and they did need to have or sorry proteinuria or uh, a gfr decrease of more than 3 mls per minute per 1.73 meter square in the last year uh, their exclusions were slightly less stringent about certain things but they did exclude patients who had gout or a history of uh, hypersensitivity to allopurinol uh, again the same kind of drugs which would cause uh, uh, drug interactions with allopurinol um, unresolved AKI uh, elective or imminent initiation of dialysis and so on uh, in this case they were randomized to receive allopurinol or placebo one to one again um, and uh, in this case the run-in phase or rather the, the initial phase of uh, ramping up was uh, 12 weeks. So over the first 12 weeks uh, they escalated the dose from 100 milligrams to 200 milligrams to 300 milligrams every four weeks over the 12 week period and they had to have certain criteria which were basically that the patients were tolerating allopurinol. So if they had any rash, if they developed anemia or leukopenia or um, uh, increased LFTs then the escalation was stopped. Uh, otherwise, the dose was escalated to 300 milligrams uh, of allopurinol over those first 12 weeks. In this case, the follow-up, uh, unlike Paul, was two years and not uh, three years. Uh, and the outcome again was a change in GFR, which was estimated GFR using CKD epi from randomization to one of four weeks. And in this case, as Dr. Sustak pointed out, this is a GFR which is much lower. Uh, so, you know, at from 15 to uh, 60, we think that the CKDIP is reasonable. And again, these are in between patient comparisons. So, uh, they should be acceptable. They had what a was of, the difference in GFR that they were powered to detect? Right. Uh, so, in this case, they were powered to detect a GFR. They described their rationale uh, perhaps a little bit better. Uh, their uh, assumption was that the annual GFR decline would continue at 3 mils per minute in the control group. Uh, but that the difference would be uh, 1.2, so 20% difference, which would be uh, 1.2 mils per minute uh, decrease less over the period of two years. So 0.6 less. 0.6 per uh, year. 0.6 per year less. Uh, now, what they say is that this is um, sort of the difference that has 0.5 to 1 is the sort of difference that has been reported in the previous small trials and systematic reviews and cohort studies as the effect of allopurinol it's about 0.5 a slowing of about 0.5 to 1 and then is they this, do some yeah sorry this is the article where they said it give them nine years delay dialysis for nine years if, it, right. if this worked right right what they and, and exactly and this would correspond to a hazard ratio of about 0.7 uh, for eskd uh, again again extrapolating uh, on a little bit uh, but that was their justification for using uh, this 20% decrease, um, you know, uh, effect of uh, allopurinol. Um, so that was, uh, and for that, they needed a sample size of 620, so 310 in each group, accounting for loss to follow-up and drop-out for a 90% power, uh, which is, again, uh, the numbers are slightly higher uh, because they're looking for a slightly uh, a different effect size. Um, and I think that's all I had. Excellent. Excellent. 
So uh, interesting to note that none of them actually used uh, like an FDA-approved outcome, right? Death, dialysis, doubling of serum creatinine, right? Exactly. Uh, and I know uh, I've seen um, uh, Sunil Badbi, who's the uh, principal author of uh, CKD Fix, uh, write something in NDT on 40% decrease in GFR. Right? There's a move to move away yeah. from, uh, from the uh, doubling of creatinine and uh, ESKD because it's hard. Uh, for us to achieve that. So they're looking at different kind of surrogate outcomes. So I, uh, 40% is the one that seems to have uh, come oh, I think up. Wasn't that was in Canvas? Wasn't it a 40% reduction? There was, the GFR? Yeah, exactly, 40%. So so what, what's your take on that, Kathleen, on, uh, on different outcomes? Albuminuria, for example. Oh, that's a hot topic. It's hard to answer. <laughs> and, <laughs> Uh, you know, the official uh, guideline is really to do the death uh, doubling of serum creatinine. I think the data on the 40% change in GFR seems very reasonable to me mm -hmm. uh, from the studies that I have seen because many of the studies that had that much of a difference in GFR really, really lined up with other hard outcomes, uh, which is the dialysis uh, and so on. Mm -hmm. I think the albuminuria is... Uh, it's a hot topic. Yeah, it's a big topic. I think we all use uh, most phase two studies use albuminuria as an outcome, and then you know a significant change in albuminuria, you know, usually translates it to a significant change in GFR in phase three studies. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think we all know that we have you know minimal change disease, which has a lot of albuminuria, and um, you know there is no real change in GFR. So. It's, it's more complicated. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll uh, get us through the results here. I'm just going to summarize um, a lot of results among the two studies, but want someone to get to the end of this just podcast. To, I, I just want to go back to <laughs> I'm sorry, just, Kettle, just thinking about Kettle's point. Do you think the reason they didn't go with an FDA-approved outcome was because the drug's already approved and there's no drug company support for this? This is a generic medication. And they really, we weren't really looking for an FDA indication. They, they, that was not their goal. Unlike well, it's, it's a drug, not, it's not approved for diabetic kidney no, disease. I, no, I get it, I get it. But, the, but they were, but it's not like it's not like the manufacturer, the, the generic manufacturer of allopurinol was going to start advertising this as an outcome. Like th th that was never going to be the outcome of this study. Well, they already have their fourteen million prescriptions. <laughs> that, yes. that's, that's true. But I do do agree with the point that you know uh, is that. Especially for Paul, if if they had if it had been a positive study, uh, you know, a GFR difference of three mils, an absolute GFR difference of three is actually you know not much. Uh, so uh, should it be enough to convince us? You know, I was already convinced even before this trial. <laughs> no, it's about three meals, but three meals over three years, right? Right. So right. I think I don't know. Uh, I I don't have full insight, but I think it was it would have been really hard to power such study. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, you see that the you know the pearl we know um, the cost of the pearl was running uh, north of uh, twenty five million dollars from uh, what the NIH uh, support was running, and I think probably even much more needed to detect this three cc GFR difference. Now to get this this three cc to an FDA approved outcome, I think the cost of that would have been really enormous. Uh, so I think it's it was simply not feasible because the effect size of the drug, even if it's effective, seemed relatively small, right? I think the other issue is that we still pay for this, right? So, I mean, obviously in the U.S. it's all different who pays for what and it's relatively cheap, but 
I'm pretty sure, you know, even generic allopurinol has some some cost associated with it. So uh, uh, I don't know how that would work if it's um, effective. You know, maybe yeah. the insurance companies would have to cover, I guess, right? Yeah, it's more cost. Yeah, and this topic is fascinating, right? On cost, I asked Sunil, uh, and he says the uh, cost of CKD fix was um, 1.9 million Australian and 1 million New Zealand. So about $3 million uh, uh, for them, uh, which is probably, you know, I don't know, maybe $2 million US dollars or so. so, uh, 300, so was, 300 milligrams allopurinol, one month supply, $7. Right, but the, but the measured GFR, the GFR measurement... The measured GFR, I think it's a very costly. Right, um, right. So that made it very costly. And I think at that GFR level, I think it was very reasonable to use measured GFR. Uh, and then, of course, the CKD fix, they didn't need the measured GFR. So I think that was a significant difference in, in the cost. Right, right. But, you know, uh, I, I totally agree that uh, the, uh, these trials were costly uh, for, for appropriate reasons. But you say, Joel, that it's $7 for a month supply. So that's what, 80, 84 for a year supply. And if that's 14 million people taking that, uh, 14, you know, that's uh, 14 times 84. That's <laughs> a lot of millions of dollars. Uh, so a year supply of allopurinol could easily fund Paul, uh, a yeah. year or two supply. So, I mean, if yeah. you think about it that way, uh, there are many things we do. Uh, as standard of care that if we somehow could do clinical trials incorporated into standard of you know clinical practice well, I want you to get you buy done. it for three months it's only nine dollars and 81 cents okay <laughs> right, so now we've cut this thing see, <laughs> if see, you it's buy it gotta... for 10 years it's gonna be only five dollars <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying there's ways to get around it. no okay, okay sorry yeah yeah no but it, it's it's true the clinical trials are expensive but the point also is that we are spending so much money already. Yeah. So, if, so if we all stop using allopurinol, we are going to save a lot of money. So, so it's really important people listen to this podcast and change their practice. Okay. No, it's very important. I think this, you know, this was expensive, but I think it was definitive. So I think it's a money well spent. No, that's because you haven't read the editorial. If you read the NHM <laughs> editorial, you know this is just the. Be- They've only begun to do these RCTs. Okay, Samira. Before we get Sorry. totally sidetracked by the editorial, can you tell us the results of the study? <laughs> Uh, Yes, absolutely. Um, So let's start with Pearl. Um, So they screened about 1,600 patients. Um, Of these, 1,000 were ineligible or cannot be included for some reason. 609 completed the run, uh, entered the run-in period, and then ultimately around 500 were assigned to the allopurinol versus the placebo group. Um, so just to review some of the um, baseline demographics, the mean age was 51. As we mentioned before, they had uh, diabetes for a mean of 35 years, mean estimated GFR of 75, um, A1C of 8%, year rate level of 6.1 milligrams per deciliter, um, BMI of 30, and the median urinary albumin um, of 41 micrograms per minute, which um, I guess we decided is low. Um, they were able to quantify the adherence, and there was a median adherence of 94% um, to the to the drug, um, and they were able to show that allopurinol worked, and the urate level decreased from 6 to about 4 at 16 weeks, and then actually went back up to the baseline level after the washout period. Um, so they found no difference in both groups in A1C, BMI, systolic or diastolic blood pressure, and the IOHEXOL GFR decreased at similar rates in both groups, and so negative 
2.5 mLs per minute per 1.73 meters square in the placebo versus 3 per year in the allopurinol group. And the IHEXL GFR dropped to around um, uh, 60 or 70 in both groups by the end of the intervention. Um, and so with respect to secondary outcomes, again, there were no clinically meaningful uh, changes either at four months into the intervention or at the end of that. And that was for both the estimated as well as the IHEXL um, calculated GFR. The urine uh, albumin excretion um, uh, was 40% higher at the end of the washout period and 30% higher at the end of the intervention in the allopurinol group um, and higher compared to the placebo group. Um, in PEARL, as well as CKD fix, um, there were some adverse effects, but they were not statistically significant in the intervention versus the placebo group. Hey, before, we, before we move on, there's a couple of, couple of cool things. So just in summary, the allopurinol group had faster loss of GFR, right? Three versus 2.5. Correct. And more proteinuria. Correct. And then the other thing that I had not seen before that I thought was cool, they said about 20% of the total population didn't get their final um, th- iothalamic GFR, and they did imputation to determine what that was. And then they did a statistical test called a tipping point sensitivity analysis, in which they kind of uh, do iterations where they estimate what that imputation is. So they, they, the first time they run it, they give their best guess of what that GFR is, and then they keep increasing the diff- the delta on that GFR for that imputation to see how long they have to get until uh, the study results are changed. They tip. And here it would, so they had a, a delta GFR of three in the allopurinol group, and it would have to have been nine in this 20% that were missed had to be wildly different than the 80% of the people that they measured for it to change the results of the study. And I had not, I, I had not seen that statistical test, and I thought it was actually pretty cool. You're, you're trying to cool. take my job from me, Joel? Well, I didn't want to embarrass you because I'm sure you didn't know what that was. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I spent a lot of time on Wikipedia learning what that was, okay? I don't want, I don't want that time to go to waste. Did yeah, I get I that right? Also the, the, that that the, was perfect, yeah. I really like the, the reduction in urate level. This is really so beautiful that how the uric acid level was lowered in the blood, no? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They beautiful. knew the people were taking the drug. They were taking the drug. It was reduced, came back. I think it was really nicely done. And honestly, if you were the, clin- the treating clinician and you'd had a patient who dropped their uric acid that much for that long, I would have thought, hey, I'm doing something great for the patient. I've yes. really helped. I've really done. Look at, look at all this. Look how low the uric acid is. Look at those numbers. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I believe I've been doing that for many years now. I, I, I'm, I'm guilty <laughs> of it also. And then... Um, and there, there was no delta in the blood pressure. And there had been data showing allopurinol. Yeah. I, th- I think it was in adolescence, so it was, uh, was where the data was most compelling. Exactly. Uh, there, is, uh, pro- there are prospective studies um, showing that allopurinol use early reduces blood pressure. Again, now I've not gone back and seen those studies closely, and I think we should do that because this is making me doubt the whole can of... Uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. I think the whole hypothesis is the something oxidase, which oxidizes the the hypoxanthin and something into urate, is uh, somehow re- creates reactive oxygen species, which is bad for the kidney and bad for the blood vessels and then the telial cells. So that's mm-hmm. really the badness coming from, I think, reactive oxygen species, is my understanding. So, 
Okay, let's do let's get CKD fix in before we go totally off the rails. Um, so CKD fix uh, screened twelve thousand uh, individuals for eligibility, and of these, they ended up randomizing three hundred sixty nine to either the allopurinol versus the placebo group. They started with twelve thousand. That was how what I read. Did I read that wrong? I, I, I believe it, I, but that's, that's just. Kind I, of I think crazy. it was actually eleven thousand nine hundred ninety eight. Maybe. Oh my god! Okay, know. okay, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and again, I think this came up during the chat when people were saying, "Oh, why didn't you uh, enroll? You know, different kind of patients. You know, even a more selective cohort." And Sunil was like, "You know, we had to go through twelve thousand. What did you want me to do? Screen a million patients to, you know, get okay. those select few." And and. Remind me, what was so difficult about this page? They had to have, they had to have a they had to have CKD three or four, and they had to have either was it proteinuria, uh, proteinuria or a GFR decline or a loss or decline. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. Okay. So Doesn't the mean GFR hard. decline for in Crick for the GFR of forty four is somewhere around one cc, right? So they had to have people with three more that. decline. Yeah. yeah. So so that's probably where you know they had to have the measurements and so on and compliance et cetera. So it's not so and that's easy. Part, it's part of the problem of trying to do a study so quickly. When you only when you want to get it done in two years, like they did, they really needed to see a delta in two years. You need to get a yep. population that has a faster loss. Okay, Samira, sorry. I uh, know. Um, so of the patients that were randomized, seventy three percent in the intervention group and eighty percent in the placebo group were able to complete the follow up at um, one hundred four weeks. So 60% of this patient population had diabetes, BMI was around 30, the mean age was around 60, the mean EGFR was around 30, so much lower than the PEARL group, and higher albuminuria, the urine, um, albumin to creatinine, um, albuminuria was 700. Um, and starting urate level was 8, so a little bit higher than the PEARL, which was starting around 6. Um, so the primary outcome, which is a change in EGFR between both groups, was similar. Both of were around three loss of three. I think it was three point three versus three point two cc per year, and this difference was not different across their pre-specified subgroups of age, race, CKD stage, diabetes, use of diuretics, and use of um, renin-angiotensin system um, inhibitors. Uh, the secondary composite outcome of a 40% decrease in EGFR and stage kidney disease or death from any cause occurred in 35% in the allopurinol group compared to 28% in the placebo group. And the risk ratio here was 1.2 with the confidence interval going from 0.9 to 1.7. Um, and similar results were observed for the composite outcome of a 30% decrease in EGFR and stage kidney disease or death from any cause. Um, they reported no difference in the geometric mean albumin to creatinine ratio, which maybe we can talk about what that means in a second. And um, again, no difference in systolic blood pressure, diastolic blood pressure, or health-related quality of life. Um, so any thoughts on what geometric mean, albumin to creatinine ratio means? Maybe Swapnil knows about what that is. If, if a, a variable is pretty skewed, um, then that's where you use, you have to transform the variable in some way. So it's sort of like a log transformation in some ways. For proteinuria, geometric mean is the, is the best way to convert it into a, from a skewed variable to a normally distributed variable to do your testing. So it becomes more um, lumped together rather than scattered from, you know, zero to thousand, uh, where the mean may be 
400, but the median is about 100. Samira, are we done, are we done with the, the results there? Yeah, I think those were the most salient results. And, and the other thing that, uh, so uh, in the chat, what came up was, uh, uh, what if, uh, what was the uric acid level? Uh, sorry, what was the urate level? And, you know, what if, what if uh, the urate level right, was Because this study did not require elevated and, uric acid, u- exactly. urate, to be enrolled. Exactly. And so people were concerned, hey, and their average uric, urate was actually relatively low, right? 8.2. Yeah, it, it was. Not that low. Mm-hmm, it was high. Uh, but but then they it seems they have done um, David Johnson uh, sort of scooped himself uh, because it seems they have an abstract at Kidney Week on this topic uh, and they have done it uh, that subgroup analysis and it seems there is no effect even I if already, the patients at high uh, uric acid. Don't worry, I've already sent the email to ASN informing them that this data has already been published on Twitter and really shouldn't be accepted as an abstract. I can't believe that they're willing to do that. <laughs> Breaking the the embargo. On the, on the yeah. JC tweet chat. Yeah, you, you could see. So uh, Sunil did not say anything, but David Johnson was seeing, uh, was just kept saying this again and again. And I think inwardly, Sunil must have been cringing at, <laughs> at these tweets coming through. Yeah, we're, we're, I, we're gonna, this is not the last we're going to see a CKD fix or Pearl. There will be a number of publications that will come out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, like to me, the, the, the most important one would be to do, you know, combine these studies. Um, like a meta-analysis, uh, perhaps an individual patient meta-analysis, because you know the sample size was not adequate. So if you could pull all these together and see, well, and there's a third study, feather, uh, feather, right? Do you, do you, and that's for That was Febuxostad. It was in uh, Nishimoto in um, AJKD. It was, uh, and they showed no effect again. But it was much lower risk, and the, you know it wasn't. There was hardly any GFR change in the control or the uh, Febuxostad. Um, so unlike these studies. Uh, they did not enrich the cohort with uh, patients having a rapid progression. And was that a one or two year study like this was? It's something like that, yeah. And one of the studies that I think is going to be interesting to come out of here is uh, here's another cohort of patients with iothalamates and EGFRs. And so, uh, right, we're, we're in the middle of this debate on race and GFR. And uh, here's another little cohort where you're going to be able to do that association. But these patients mostly uh, Europeans, I think. Uh, yes. So Pearl was, I think, eighty or ninety percent European, very, very high percentage. Was, I think it was ten percent African American. Ten percent, yeah. So right. I love yeah, mostly, the, I, mostly Caucasian. Yeah. I, I love the the ethnic breakdown in uh, in CKD fix because it's all Australian Aboriginals two percent and New Zealand Maori seven percent. Asians, 4%, just just groups that I don't normally think about. Exactly. So uh, again, if I can digress a little bit, um, if you remember the papers from Sergi Sphere in, yes. Yes. Uh, in, in New England and uh, Lancet, which were retracted, uh, one of the things that, uh, so again, these were, you know, uh, data that we presume were fraudulent. One of the things that tipped off uh, Nick Brown, who's one of these data thugs, uh, was that the racial background uh, of this supposedly global study with patients from Europe, um, Africa, Asia, Australia, the racial background was very much American. Uh, so they had, you know, 7% Native Americans and uh, so many Hispanic, which didn't make sense uh, for, a, for a global study. It was kind of a, one of those things that tipped us off. Excellent. Anyway. 
sorry, let's go back to usual programming. So is this, uh, is this enough? Uh, and, and I would like, uh, you know, more thoughts on the Mendelian randomization study. Uh, I had seen that come out a few months ago uh, in PLOS One, uh, and it was... Kellen, you, you had some strong feelings about this Mendele- Mendelian randomization. Can you just tell us what Mendelian randomization is? Right. So uh, uh, under full disclosure, I was part of uh, some of the recent studies for um, uric acid uh, genome-wide association analysis. Actually, the GWAS for urate has been really, really um, uh, useful. So even the first one identified the urate transporter with a very small number of patients uh, and identified very, very interesting pathology that mostly genes in the kidney essentially code uh, or responsible for a large percent or determine uric acid level in the blood. So there are very few GWAS studies where we could explain substantial amount of heritability, but uric acid is one of them. So these polymorphisms, uh, which is mostly at the uric acid transporters, SLC22, SLC2, explain good percentage of uh, your urate level. So what uh, Mendelian randomization studies do essentially use this information that we know what what genetically determines your uric acid level, and then from the effect sizes on the urate, they will try to essentially predict whether this association is um, valid for other outcome like kidney disease or um, uh, cardiovascular disease. So there's been a large lot of uh, Mendelian randomization with uric acid levels for CKD, for cardiovascular disease. I just Googled it, like even from atrial fibrillation and so on. Right. So uh, I'm sorry, uh, help me out. So now you have patients with these varying genetic footprints and these yeah. and you separate them out and this genetic footprint is going to show is going to tend to have a higher uric acid and this one is going to have a lower uric acid right so essentially yes you could have variants genetic sequence variants which genetically will determine your uric acid level okay and you don't and go- then you use that instrument to see whether the uric acid the genetic variants now responsible as a mediator for the other outcome then you, then you see if it predicts the outcome that you're interested in in this case it would be yes essentially like whether yeah. those people who are genetically determined to have high urate level are also going to have kidney disease or people who have genetically determined to have a low urate level as also has the other outcome and the answer was they didn't so the early studies actually were positive. There were some very early studies that was uh, that showed an effect uh, on various outcomes. The largest one I think was published last year uh, by the I think by the Mount Sinai group. I feel Rondo and so on uh, is on the paper uh, in Plus Medicine, and I think it was negative. It had uh, more than a hundred thousand people in it. Wait, wait, how do they get a hundred? How do, how do they have a hundred thousand people with outcomes? How, where's that? Where does that data come from? Uh, mostly from large biobanks. Uh, so we have, you know, the UK biobank, we have 500, you know, half a million people with that, genetic variants and outcome. But this genetic one variants mostly, and outcomes. Okay. Yes. Uh, there is Mount Sinai biobank, Bio, Biome. Uh, I think it has also probably 100,000 people uh, with genetic variants and outcome. Uh, 
mostly from large. There are lots of large biobanks available right now. With lots hey, Catalan, of Catalan, can you give me a sense of like what percentage of the population? Like, is it is it like ninety percent of the people have one variant and just ten percent have this, or is it more like a fifty-fifty type thing? Like, what what do you get a sense of that? So this is actually not just one variant, but there are lots of variants. Uh, you have many polymorphisms uh, that are associated with uh, with uric acid level when you do a genome-wide association study. So you have, um, and then you pull these variants together, and then you look at them as an instrumental variable. You can only do this for outcomes where the variables explain significant portion of heritability. So um, for certain diseases, we still don't have enough of these genetic variants that would explain the heritability. Um, I think maybe for GFR, I think we still explain very small percentage of heritability, but there are other traits like uric acid where these variants, not one, but many, there are hundreds that they actually pull together, which explain in aggregate a large percentage of heritability of the serum uric acid level. So for example, um, I mean, the cool thing about uh, the, the biobank studies is, is when your exposure is uh, these genetic variants, uh, and it's not, you know, smoking or diabetes, which you have to go back and measure and ask the patients. Uh, you just measure it in the blood samples. So these are stored blood samples you measure the genetic variant. So the exposure is easy to measure and the outcome is usually, you know, death or, or kidney failure or what have you, which is also easy to measure. So that, that part is cool. Now, um, my question for you is, um, when you do these studies, um, has it been established that, let's say, these five genes explain uric acid and then in the biobank, you look at those, you know, I'm sure it's more than five, but let's say it's five genes and kidney failure. Uh, and you don't measure uric acid, am I right, in this in this uh, GVAS study, uh, in the Mendelian randomization study? I think the Mendelian randomization, I would have to look back to be fair. But yeah, that's exactly the the what you need to have. You need to have just the genetic variants from the GWAS studies. Uh, and then that those genetic variants has to explain a significant percentage of heritability of the trait. So for example, for urate, we have these we have such variants. Not we don't have such variants for every single trait, but for urate we have that, and we use those variants um, to essentially um, as a, 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 to understand the outcome, which could be under these circumstances either cardiovascular disease or, or renal disease. Right, that's, that's pretty cool. Now, um, how how strong are um, these uh, studies? Um, can we take them to the bank? Uh, saying, hey, you know, the Mendelian randomization study has been You can done. take them uh, to the biobank. Bank. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, in case like, like, I, like, official dad joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, uh, because one of the implications is that maybe yes. these trials were futile, right? We already knew the answer. Yes. I think the, the, the Mendelian randomization study came out after, the negative Mendelian randomization study came out after Pearl was started. I think Pearl was started probably five years ago, I would say, or even uh, earlier. And the Mendelian randomization came up probably last year. So that's not true. I think one caveat is that you need to have traits where you can explain large percentage of heritability. So the SNPs should explain uh, you know, a large amount of the outcome. And we don't have that for multiple traits. For multiple traits, we can only explain a small percentage of the outcome by these SNPs. But for urate, 
um, it's it's great, and it's actually it's beautiful renal physiology because all the urate levels are the transporters that are in the kidney or or genes that are you know um, determine proximal tubule health. Mm-hmm. So I think so it's they, they a wonderful. Make a lot of sense about yeah, the, it's wonderful renal physiology for the uric acid level. But if you flip this around, and the Mendelian randomization was positive it still wouldn't show that allopurinol was beneficial. You'd still have to do this study, right? Because who knows, maybe the side effects of allopurinol or some pleiotropic effects would neutralize that benefit, right? Like, oh, yeah. Is it- oh yeah, absolutely. I think also, you know, it's a drug, so it could have a side effect as well. Absolutely. So it, it, yeah. it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. But I think these Mendelian randomization studies um, for traits where you can't, where you have SNPs, which is a significant portion of the outcome, I think it's relatively cheap, right, to perform, um, relatively easy to perform, and it gives you some uh, idea whether it's worth to go after and spend your $25 million or um, maybe not. <laughs> right, right. It's fascinating how fast the field has evolved, uh, you know, in genetics and GVAS and and the Mendelian randomization studies, uh, it's, it's like the future. We are seeing it unfold. Um, but some people obviously don't like the future unfolding as the editorial uh, uh, accompanying the NEJM was. Uh, but even before that, uh, uh, so in between the Kidney Week uh, presentation, which is what, eight months ago, uh, and uh, the actual publication, there was a, a review by Richard Johnson in Nature Reviews Nephrology where they, you know, they did some kind of a, their own uh, systematic review. And they said, oh, you know, you have to exclude these studies and those studies. And lo and behold, uric acid still has an effect. Uh, so some people are, are still in, uh, in denial. Uh, there's also a review in Kidney International yesterday uh, by Claudio Monticelli. Uh, saying, oh, no, yesterday, yes. Yesterday. I, I think it's hard because for the uric acid, one of the big problems is that you cannot study in the mice. Uh, so the model organisms were not very useful. Right, that, that's uh, why Matt didn't show up today. <laughs> <laughs> but but, uh, but there has been there have been these kind of studies, right, which suggested it was really bad. Uh, yes, yes, I think the xanthine oxidase is is bad. I think it creates a reactive oxygen species and and in cells, and I think it's uh, you know definitely seems to be quite bad. And I think so 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 for this reason, I think it was very reasonable to do human studies because the model organisms were not really recapitulating the pathway. Well, it, it, it's fascinating because the story was compelling. Uh, you know, a few years ago, it, it was like, you know, I, I was honestly, I was hoping this would work. Did, did, uh, every, did everybody read the uh, editorial in NEJM? Yeah, Daniel Fig. Um, Daniel Fig. So I don't know who this guy is, but the, the, the gist of the editorial was, you know, here we have two articles in really lockstep, complete agreement, randomization, placebo controlled, one, two years, one, three years, one oversubscribed, one of them undersubscribed, but absolutely consistent results that this has no effect at all. And he lays out a case where, well, if you had a patient population that was not as sick, really kind of leaning towards it, these patients were too ill, patients that had, you know, leaning into the, the diabetic nephropathy in the uh, in Pearl and patients with advanced kidney disease in CKD fix, that that would be the population where this would be beneficial. And it, to me, it was just, I just, I rolled my eyes as I was reading it. I was like, you know, it, it, we're not seeing any signal here at all. 
you know exactly and, and in earlier stage ckd like these trials were hard to do and we are we were quibbling about the outcomes being you know soft uh, yeah. a change in gfr if you're talking about earlier stage ckd i don't know you would need like uh, 10000 patients with you know uh not 25 million it seems a few few hundred million dollars of nih money there is there's yeah. absolutely no case i think it will be very hard to do an earlier study and i think there are many patients in the in pearl they had a lot of people above gfr 60 right so they went up to gfr 90 mm-hmm. yeah so i mean the subgroup analysis is probably good um i think looking at biomarkers i think it would be a really good idea Uh, and they probably hopefully they will do that but redoing it at the earlier stages i think it will be very hard to make a case but i think it's it's uh, overall i think it's very nicely done i think the the measure gfr was very nicely performed uh two studies so i it, it really convinces me yeah yeah two studies and both with very very consistent results well and i think i think we i think you got to throw feather in i think you got to say it's really three studies yeah. now we got three yeah. human randomized controlled trials three separate populations done on three different parts of the globe all consistently show no effect from this intervention we're done here this this is put a fork in it this 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 theory is over Yeah, I mean, I mean, we always argue that nephrology, you know, doesn't do enough randomized controlled trials. We are at the bottom, uh, so people are doing randomized controlled trials. Uh, they should change our clinical practice. What's the point uh, of saying we don't do enough RCTs if the RCTs don't change our practice? Yeah, that's exactly right. Let's call it quits. No allopurinol unless there's gout. Sabir, you got anything else on these studies? No, I mean, I think as we've mentioned before, it always felt good to see the uric acid level come down, and I feel like we always associate it with a marker of badness, and it it still is a marker of badness. But I think, as I said before, it's to me it kind of feels like the phosphorus that we're lowering it, but maybe there's no data that there's any real benefit to doing that. On to phosphate next. So, so there is uh, there are two trials actually going on, right? So there's the high low trial uh, led by. Uh, Miles Wolf uh, and others in the US and there's the phosphate trial uh, led by again Sunil Badvi and Ron Wald and uh, Mike Walsh uh, which is looking at phosphate targets again these will be you know we'll be discussing that on a podcast in 2025 or looking something. forward looking forward to that that should be that would be great <laughs> if if you are all around then and these these allopurinol and both and febuxep they're both no-nos in transplant right you can't mix them with the uh, antimetabolite is that right? is that right Samir do I got that Uh, we use allopurinol, not so much for buxostat. Um, you can't use it with azathioprine. It's azathioprine. That's right, but we yeah, but we rarely use azathioprine gotcha. now. So yeah. Okay. Was that too much like a pimp question, or did I get that buff? It was like a half. <laughs> <laughs> Always the relative yeah. fellow of the group. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Catlin, do you have anything else to say? Uh, no, I think these are very nicely performed studies. Uh, I am glad that the both group did a very nice job in terms of uh, enrolling, randomizing, uh, lowering the uric acid very efficiently. Uh, I'm slightly sad that the outcome is negative, but I think I am slightly happy that it's very consistent with the genetics, uh, and then both studies had the consistent outcome. So I think putting all three studies and the genetics together i think it's fairly convincing rare to see this so i'm i'm quite satisfied and 
Okay, excellent. Swapnil, do you have any last words? Uh, not on this study. Are we doing uh, tubular secretions? Yeah, do you want to do tubular secretions? Do you have anything to, to talk about? Um, many. I mean, we can talk about many things. The The fun thing that has been going on uh, the last couple of days is there's this paper called, uh, says PPIs are bad for COVID. And uh, it's one of those ridiculous papers uh, that uh, should probably get retracted. Uh, the funny thing is that it's uh, the P, the the lead author is the editor in chief of the journal where it is published, uh, which is like a huge red flag. Uh, right? We had Har Feldman uh, from Crick, and he was explaining all the you know uh, barriers and firewalls they have. Uh, it looks like this research letter had nothing, and it's it's been featured everywhere, saying oh PPI COVID. So I'm think I'm thinking a lot of people are going to get phone calls about stopping their PPIs. The thing that uh, gets you is that it's it's amazing. Um, it looks like people who got COVID were very rich, uh, uh, with an <laughs> income of more than two hundred thousand, and were and were young Latino patients. It, it's very odd. Uh, so this was based on a survey where you know a web survey where they asked people, "Are you taking a PPI? Did you get COVID?" So it looks like, uh, and there were some incentives. So there may have been some uh, uh, incentive. Uh, what was the, where was the population? Like, was it? It is a national of- survey. Uh, and it just, you know, not many, there are many aspects of it, which doesn't make sense. Uh, but, but so the, the uh, funny part is the uh, author sort of had a long Twitter thread. And then we asked, people started jumping in asking questions. And he, he initially replied, and then it looked like he was in trouble as people pointed out inconsistencies in the table one. And he said, hey, you know, this is fine, but I can't debate this in 240 characters. Send a letter to the editor. Ah, the ultimate, the, the ultimate <laughs> which escape. Is, uh, for which he's the editor, to the journal for which he's the editor-in-chief. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's bad. Uh, <laughs> this is like COVID has resulted in so many uh, really bad uh, papers coming out. It's just amazing. I think uh, COVID is bringing out all the badness, all the inequities, inequalities uh, in our patients, people who are publishing, people who can work and who cannot work. And and a lot of bad science being published, and uh, it's just. I think there's been a lot of bad science for a long time, but we're paying a lot more attention to it, and everything's getting very carefully evaluated. I think a lot of this stuff was sliding under the table. Certainly, health disparities were there long before COVID. We're just we're just starting to notice them because everybody's attention's on COVID. The the other couple of things that I I never funny things that I had meant to talk before, but I didn't, is that uh, among the interesting Twitter accounts that have come during COVID, uh, there's this guy called, I don't know if you follow, hashtag the cowboy. The cowboy. Uh, uh, hashtag the cowboy. Uh, so he's, uh, the, when they shut down the National Cowboy Museum, uh, apparently the, only the watchman or the guard was allowed to be in the uh, museum. So they, he started running the Twitter account. And then he had these funny tweets, uh, and then he would say, hashtag something. But he would type out the hashtag, right? He would say H-A-S-H-T-A-G something. He said, oh, people said I should use this. My grandson says I should say hashtag. So he started saying that. And then uh, then he tweeted saying, oh, no, I'm supposed to use this symbol. So then he started using symbol. So the hashtag and hashtag written down. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, he's, he's hilarious. That guy is like, uh, and he's so, it's one of those endearing guys, right? He's so innocently bumbling through uh, the whole thing. It's got like a million followers or something uh, since he started the account. Um, anyway. Excellent. Fun, fun things that have happened on COVID. Wow. Samira, what, do you, a good one. Samira, what do you got? 
Um, so our new fellows started uh, this week, and for the first time in our fellowship, we're using um, applications like WhatsApp and Slack to communicate with our fellows. A little bit of a preview to the NEFJC that's coming up soon, um, and it's really been fun to communicate with the fellows that way, easier to share files and information, and I feel like our fellowship is coming into the current century. Um, and so really useful applications and recommend them for anyone that is communicating with trying to work with large groups. So, of so people. Why, why don't you just kind of quickly summarize, how are you using WhatsApp? Um, so we, so we started using WhatsApp just as a venue for conversation for fellows to ask questions that they had to share resources that they might need. Standard group chat. Um, and then um, we actually wanted to bring back something that we had done in the past, a, a weekly board review question of the week, and WhatsApp doesn't have a polling feature. And so we're moving the whole chat over into Slack now so that we can do polls that way to make it a little bit easier for fellows to answer. And then also in Slack, you can more easily share files. Yes. So we can share um, PDF files, yeah. PowerPoint It seems like a better platform. You can, ch- you can silo conversations, et cetera. Yeah, and most of our fellows already have either one or both of those applications, so it's been very easy to kind of bring everyone together. And how about the faculty? Um, faculty have uh, downloaded the applications and are getting used to the new normal. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. And Happily getting used to <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're trying. <laughs> and so, and I know this podcast will not be out in time for this, but I know this weekend you guys are doing, is this the second or third? Um, sorry. Uh, so we're doing a, um, a live uh, pathology session with Arcana Labs that's also sponsored by KidneyCon, NefJC, and NefSim. And so we'll have a few um, Arcana nephropathologists who will in real time go over some kidney pathology slides. They'll be able to share their microscope and um, teach us how to look at kidney pathology. And so we have um, a Zoom session scheduled for Saturday and there's a registration link that's um, circulating. Yeah, but this is going to come out long after that. Is this going to be a monthly thing or how do you have a sense of how often this is going to be done? I think we're aiming for monthly. Uh, we'll see what the response is and uh, take it from there. And th- is this is the um, second one or the third one that's coming up? This is the third one. You, I know last time you got a ton of people really popular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so each time we've been hitting three to four hundred uh, participants. That's awesome from from around the entire world, which has been very cool. And it's you, Matt, and who 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 who's from Arcana? Um, so it's their whole team: um, Shri Sharma, Chris Larson, uh, Nick Kasi. Um, there's t- so, so many of them. Uh, Tiffany Kaza. Those guys are um, great. It's a great team. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Okay, uh, Catalan, what do you got for us? Anything else? Not too much I could share, to be honest. Okay. Uh. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, we are doing a uh, NEFJC book club. So this is something that we do uh, every summer where uh, we kind of shift gears. So instead of uh, doing a research article, uh, we have um, people read a book. And it's supposed to be something that you can read uh, over the summer. And this year, we're doing uh, Rana Oddish's uh, book called In Shock. And it, this is uh, she's an intensivist at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. And uh, I think when she was a, a, a new attending, brand new attending, she I think she got septic shock and ended up in her own ICU and had a pretty harrowing near-death experience. And apparently, it's a really powerful book in a lot of medical schools – 
have kind of adopted it as a way of teaching about uh, uh, patient empathy. I, I haven't read the book yet. I'm pretty excited to read it. I, Anybody? Yeah, I just started it. And um, it's like, it, it's it's one of those unputdownable books. I've just started and I had to force myself to put it down. It's like, you know, she she called her own code, for example. Oh, my God. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like she was suddenly, you know, deteriorated and she realized she was going to die. So she, you know... It, <laughs> push the code button oh. uh yeah it's it's pretty interesting okay yeah. so yeah so she seems like a super interesting woman she was on um this american life talking about uh, uh covid19 when it hit henry ford and it was a really compelling episode so uh so go buy in shock there's a link to it on the nefjc homepage because we are going to be talking about that on august 25th and august 26th and hey, guys, thanks for joining us tonight. This was a lot of fun. This is a good, uh, this is a good episode. Yeah, yeah, this was, you know, awesome. Thanks again, Dr. Kathleen. Thank you. And thanks for inviting me. This was my first time. It was so much fun. Thank you. And it was great to get to know you and talk to you in real life. <laughs> Excellent.